0: Well, the question that I wanted to ask today is, what is our biggest problem? Uh, Or, you could put it more personally, what is your biggest problem? And I think that's not an easy question, because when you look around our world, there are lots of problems. We've got no shortage of problems. We've got a rise in terrorism around the world. Uh, We've got the Middle East going up in flames. Uh, Iraq is still a huge problem. Syria is on the brink of collapse. The Israelis and the Palestinians are still going at each other's throats and it seems like there's no end in sight. We've got global warming, rising sea levels, extreme weather, uh, potential of entire countries, island countries being swamped. Then, when you look closer to home, you notice that there are a whole heap of social problems as well. I don't know about you, I don't know the last time you went into the Perth CBD. uh, For me, it was a couple of weekends ago, and I wandered in and was walking around, looking at shops and that sort of thing, and I saw more homeless people than I've ever seen before in Perth. We've got real social problems. We've got children being locked up, and in some cases, basically tortured. Come to light recently. We've got refugees looking for a better life but locked up in detention centres for years at a stretch, just each day becoming increasingly hopeless. We've got increasing polarisation in politics where it seems like each side is more interested in demonising the other than in actually helping the people that they were elected to govern. And even at a personal level, we look around and we see in our own families and in our own lives uh, breakdowns in relationships, uh, marriages that fall apart. We see friends who stab us in the back. It's a lot of problems. But what's our biggest problem? Uh, What is your biggest problem? Well, Nate is going to come and read a passage from the Bible for us. It's from uh, a letter called Romans, written by a guy called Paul. Uh, And Paul had been an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. Come on up, Nate. Uh, Paul had been an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and he'd been utterly opposed to this new movement of people claiming that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, the Christ, God's King, They claimed that he had been crucified by the Romans and that three days later he'd risen from the dead. And Paul hated these Christians. Uh, He did everything that he could to destroy them until one day, uh, travelling from Jerusalem, where he'd managed to scatter the church, up to Damascus in Syria to try and destroy the church there, he was blinded by the appearance of the resurrected Jesus. And it turned his whole world upside down. So have a listen to this. Uh, this is Paul's diagnosis, God's diagnosis, of what the problem with people is.
1: Hi, so I'm Nate. Um, I'll be reading Romans 1, 18 to 32, if you want to look it up in your Bible, or it's in the little pamphlet that was given to you. Sure, cool. I'm going to read. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, who... Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since they may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. "'Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, "'so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not be done. "'They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. "'They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. "'They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful.' They invent ways of doing evil, they disobey their parents, and they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them.
0: Thanks, Kate. Um, I should say uh, that in this talk I'll say some fairly controversial things, um, but we've got time for questions at the end, so if you've got a question, uh, write it down, and you can ask me at the end and I'll do my best to answer it, or just admit that I don't know, and um, we'll see how we go. So we've got lots of problems uh, when we look around the world, when we look at ourselves, but what does God say is our biggest problem? Well, it's right there in verse 18. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, someone has helpfully gone through and sort of divided it all up so we can find bits easily. The big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses. And so the little number uh, there, number 18, uh, is the sentence that we're looking at. What's our biggest problem? Uh, Is it climate change? Is it poverty? Is it greed? Is it Donald Trump uh, or Hillary Clinton? No, serious as those problems may be, uh, our number one problem is actually that God is angry with us. Paul talks about the wrath of God. And that's not a really popular idea, is it? Uh, You don't manage to get people very happy or excited by saying that God is angry because we like the idea of God being a God of love. Uh, We're kind of happy with that, that that sort of fits well with how we'd like to see things, and we're not so keen on an angry God. But then if you stop and think about it for a moment, where did you pick up the idea that God is a loving God? Because I don't think you pick it up just by looking at the world. Because the world is complex. Uh, There's good things that happen, and there's some really awful things to happen. Uh, If you're just looking at the world... I think you'd probably end up more like Hinduism, wouldn't you, where you've got a whole array of gods who cover all sorts of different situations and circumstances and realms, some of whom are kind and happy and good, others of whom are violent and malicious and malevolent. I don't think you've picked it up from Islam, because although Islam says that God is loving, actually... The God of Islam is fairly distant and impersonal. I think we've picked up the idea that God is loving from the Bible. We've got it from our Christian heritage. Uh, Probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But the same Bible that says that God loves us also says that he is angry with us. You think, well, how does that work? How can you love someone and be angry at them at the same time? Well, maybe you've experienced that already. Maybe you've had that experience with your parents, that you love them, but you're angry with them. Or some of you might have children in the future, and then you will have a very clear understanding of what it means to love someone and to be angry at them at the same time. Children are wonderful and they are infuriating. (laughs) Or you might be like one of my friends whose wife struggles with alcoholism. Uh, That's been really tough on her. It's been tough on him and their whole family. Uh, He loves her enormously and he's been working with her for years to try and kick this addiction to alcohol. He was telling me a while ago that he felt like they had really been getting somewhere. And then one day he came home to discover her drunk from a bottle of vodka she'd been hiding from him. And he was furious. Not because he doesn't love her, but because he does. Uh, and he just felt so betrayed and so angry that she was throwing away her life and her family and everything that they had felt like she was treating all of them with contempt and destroying herself in the process. He was angry, not violent, but angry. Not because he didn't love her, but because he does. Anger and love are not incompatible. In fact, our anger often often comes because we love someone. If we didn't love them, we just wouldn't care. It would mean nothing to us. But why is God angry? Well, have a look there again at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. God says he's angry because we, all of us, suppress the truth about him even though he's made it crystal clear he's made it plain to us how do we do that Uh, well in verse 20 paul says that there are two things about god that are perfectly plain his eternal power and his divine nature in other words simply by looking at creation we know instinctively that there's a creator we know that the tree didn't make itself the rock didn't make itself And as far back as you push, it didn't make itself. If you go right back to the Big Bang, when everything came into existence, well, nothing doesn't produce something. That's axiomatic for science. You don't get something from nothing. If you did, science would fall apart. We'd have things like chocolate cakes just appearing out of nowhere. But you don't get chocolate cakes from nothing. And you don't get universes from nothing either. The new atheists have tried to say that you can, but they only managed to do that by redefining nothing so it actually means something. A quantum soup or physical laws or something like that. But actually cosmology, modern cosmology, points in the same direction as the Bible. At one point there was nothing. No physical universe, no laws, nothing else. Nothing physical at all. And then there was. Where did it come from? Creation didn't create itself. The creator did. Something non-physical. Something that's not energy or matter or laws. Something entirely other. An enormously powerful thing. Something that existed eternally before creation. And deep down... Instinctively, we all know it. Uh, Dr. Oliveira Petrovich from Oxford University uh, has studied childhood beliefs. And what she's discovered is that across cultures, even across uh, quite atheistic cultures, children have a natural instinctive belief in a creator. Uh, Despite what the atheists may want parents to tick on the census form for their kids, the research shows that children aren't born atheists. You've got to teach that to them. You've got to indoctrinate them. You don't need to teach kids that there's a God. They just naturally assume it. We don't instinctively know much about that God, but we do get that He's the Creator, that He made things, that He's not a part of creation, that He's not a tree or a rock or a mammal or a reptile or a bird or a fish or any, even a human. We're all made by God, but we are not God. God doesn't have a created nature, says Paul. He has a divine nature, something entirely other. And you don't need to be Jewish or Christian or anything else to realise that. We just know it instinctively. The creation has a creator. But the question is, what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with this small little bit of knowledge we have that there's a creator? Do we glorify him and give thanks for all that he's done? Well, occasionally we do, I think, don't we? You know, when you have that near miss on the freeway and you pull over to the emergency lane and you're trembling and you're shaking and you think, I could have died then, and you think, thank you, God. Or that time where the guy or the girl that you are madly in love with actually says yes when you ask them out. And you think, thank you, God. (laughs) But most of the time, we don't thank God, do we? Most of the time, we just do what Paul says in verse 21. that Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Uh, One of my friends uh, was at a church in Margaret River. And uh, they had uh, something coming up. I think it was an Easter event or something like that. And they wanted to invite people from Margaret River along to it. So they went out and they were door knocking uh, around Margaret River, just chatting to people and inviting them along to this thing the church was doing. Uh, And one of the doors he knocked on, he met uh, a bunch of guys, about three of them who were sharing a house together. And um, they were just your ordinary average Aussie guys who were living in Margaret River for the surf. Uh, That's what they lived for. It was every day to go down to the beach to enjoy the surf. That's what they wanted out of life. So they carved an idol out of a tree stump in their backyard and they set it up. And every morning before they went out to the beach to see what the swell was like, they would pray to this God that they had carved out of a tree stump that they'd have a good surf. Not to the Creator, who made the ocean and the beach and the waves, but to the tree stump, to the God that they had made. Now, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But actually, if you look across the world and across history, that's what people instinctively do. We make gods and we pray to them. We carve them, we smelt them from iron or gold, and instead of praying to the God who made us, we pray to the thing that we have made, even in the West, where you know apart from Margaret River, uh, our history of Christianity is largely done away with idols. Many people still worship some part of creation, uh, whether it 's the hardcore greenie who for nature uh, for them nature is something kind of spiritual, or whether it 's the cynical businessman who just worships money or the average Aussie who just worships themselves. We've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. We're kind of like a, a kid who lives in a house that's been built by their parents. Their parents live there. They love her. They've provided her with food and uh, clothes and entertainment, lavished them with everything that they need. But she just ignores them, just acts as though they don't exist and instead what she's done is she's set up in her bedroom a teddy bear and every time her parents do something lovely for her she thanks the teddy bear and you think, well, you know uh, maybe that's kind of funny maybe a little bit cute with a kid for a while but when it comes to us and God that's tragic, isn't it? that we would worship The stuff that we've been given, rather than the one who has given it. To ignore the creator who loves us and provides us with everything, with food, with oxygen, with our very heartbeats. That is not right. It's badly wrong. And God is rightly angry. So how does God respond to people suppressing the truth about him how does he reveal his wrath does he go around smiting people does he strike them with lightning bolts no not generally i suppose some people get hit by lightning bolts but how does god reveal his wrath well he does it by letting us go you can see it there in verse 24 and 26 and 28 where he says god gave them over god gave them over god gave them over how does God reveal his wrath? By letting us do what we want to do. He lets us go in our rebellion. One of the ways he lets us go that Paul mentions here is, uh, is sex. So verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. It's not that God is anti-sex, after all he made it. But The way we use it, where we treat other people as conquests, as notches on the belt, as someone to be used for our pleasure for a night or a month or a couple of years. And then when we get tired of them, when they're not giving us the same thrill anymore, we just push them aside and move on to the next victim. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, a hundred years ago, no one would have batted an eyelid at those verses, but it kind of comes as a shock to us now, doesn't it, to read something like that, like I find that hard to read. I find that difficult, offensive, seems to be saying that God reveals his wrath by letting people become homosexual. And I don't know about you, but does that strike you as bizarre, as offensive even? Is it the sort of thing that you'd kind of expect from a right-wing bigot, the sort of awful people that you see at gay pride marches holding up banners like God hates fags or something like that was something equally awful, something disgusting. Has Paul gone off the deep end into some kind of homophobic rant? Does he hate homosexuals? Does God? I mean, there have been various attempts to get around these verses to say, oh, he must be talking about pedophilia or... Uh, must be talking about homosexual prostitution in a pagan temple or that he's talking about people who are heterosexual by inclination engaging in homosexual behaviour. But the problem is that if Paul wanted to say any of those things, he could have said it quite clearly. But instead, he just uses the normal Greek words for homosexual sex. So what's going on? Is he homophobic? Uh, Is God... Well, no, (laughs) neither of them are. And oddly, the clue to it is that in verses 26 and 27, he calls homosexual sex unnatural. Now, there are people who use that as a a slur, as a a term of abuse to throw at people. Ugh, it's unnatural, you make me sick. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He doesn't hate homosexuals. In fact, if you read his other letters, you discover that there are people in the churches that he's planted who had been involved in homosexual sex before they were Christian and presumably still have those desires after they've become Christian. It's not like flicking a light switch or something. And Paul loves them. So why does he use the term unnatural here? For us, it's got lots of baggage. It's got sort of hate speech associated with it. But that's not what Paul means here. He's using unnatural because he's just been talking about the creator, the one who made us, the one who designed us and gave us our nature. And our nature, as male and female, is that we fit together. I mean, not to go all R-rated on you, But it is kind of obvious, isn't it, that penises and vaginas are made to fit together. We're designed to go together as men and women. And that's what Paul means. God's not anti-sex. He's designed us for it. But he's designed us with a nature where men and women fit together. And Paul is using that here, not because he's particularly anti-homosexual, But because it's just really obvious that you don't need to have a Bible, you don't need to have a special relationship, uh, a special revelation from God. All you need to do is to be able to look at a naked man and a naked woman to see that they fit together. Now, I was talking to uh, a girl a while ago, a UWA student, uh, who told me that she was homosexual. Um, And she's a lovely girl. We had this really great conversation. We were talking about, you know, what's that like for you? And, um, you know, how have you found that uh, in our society and that kind of thing? What's your experience been with Christians? Uh, Have you found them aggressive or have you found them friendly and welcoming? Um, And fortunately, she'd found Christians welcoming, um, which is encouraging. But she said to me, we were talking about this sort of stuff. And she said, yeah, look, it seems obvious to me that... Men and women are made to fit together. But when I'm with a guy, it just feels like... And when I'm with a girl, it feels like... It just feels right. And Paul totally gets that. He's not saying that it feels wrong. He's saying that it does feel right. And that's the problem. And not just for people who have homosexual attraction, but for all of us. For all of us. Whether we identify as male or female, gay or straight, whatever it is, deep down we have feelings that run against the God who made us, that run against the nature that he made us with. Deep down in our hearts and minds, in our inmost beings, we genuinely desire, all of us sincerely long for things that are opposed to God and what he's made us for. You can see it there in verse 28 where he goes on, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters. Insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them. You think, is that, is that a bit extreme? Is that a bit full on? Like, can you really say that people are like that? Well, if you look around the world, it's not that extreme to say it, is it? We do see people filled with every kind of wickedness. We see people (laughs) who will happily destroy whole environments and species, people and even nations in their greed. What's going to solve that? Is it better education? No, I don't think so. Because the people who do it are often some of the best educated people in the world. You've got to be pretty well educated. You've got to be pretty competent and capable to manage destruction on that kind of scale. Well, what about technology? Will that solve all our evil and depravity? Well, not if you're familiar with the internet. You look at the web. And it's got every kind of evil there. Well, it's not as though pornography, even child pornography was unknown before uh, the web was invented. But it's a lot more common now. Our technological advancement has actually led to equally rapid advancements in our depravity. See the awful things that people do to each other that are broadcast for everyone to see and enjoy It's just sickening. I bet most of us here have probably watched something like that. People being used and abused on the web, selling their bodies or perhaps their bodies even being sold for the sake of a few clicks. And when you start to think about that, you start to realise that the problem is not just out there, is it? It's not just bad people out there. If we could just separate the bad people from the good people, And all us good people could just get along and life would be wonderful. It's not just greedy corporations, corrupt and mean-spirited politicians. It's not just murderers and pedophiles. It's not just the bigots on the right or the perpetually outraged people of the left, both of whom set themselves up as the moral arbiters, the standards of all that is right and wrong. No, the problem is not out there. It's in here. The problem's actually us. Murder, strife, deceit, malice. If you've got any insight and you look into your heart, you see inklings of that there, don't you? Gossip, slander. It's not just others out there who are arrogant and boastful, it's me as well. And my guess is it's you too. We're not immune from being senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, as though us middle-class UWA students just float above all that, pursuing the impossible. (laughs) No. If you've got any insight into yourself at all, you know that you have thought and said and done things that are wrong, that are evil, that are destructive. Things that you would be absolutely horrified for anyone else to know. Things that would sicken them. But someone else does know. God knows. The God that we all turn our backs on knows what's in our hearts and what's in our minds. He sees it all and he is sickened. And he's angry. Angry at how we've turned our backs on him. Angry at the evil that we have done in going our own way. And if that is the problem, then education will not help. Technology will not do the job. Trying harder (laughs) won't get us there. We will just be smarter, more technologically advanced in our efforts to ignore God. Trying to fix it all ourselves. But we can't fix it. We can't undo what we've thought and said and done. We can't change our desires. And so we can't make God pleased with us. We cannot take away his anger at our evil. Our only hope is actually for someone to take his anger in our place. Someone to sacrifice themselves to cop his anger in our place. That is our only hope. And that is exactly what Jesus has done. We're going to unpack that a bit more in the next six weeks. Um, But for now, I think it would be appropriate for us just to stop and say sorry to God for the way that we've treated him uh, and the world that he's made. So I'm going to pray. Uh, This is what I'm going to say. I'm just going to say to God, Dear God, I'm sorry for how I've treated you. I'm sorry for living for the things you've created instead of for you, the creator. Please forgive me for that and for all the things I've done that have made you angry. Now, that may not be something that you're uh, ready to pray yet, but uh, if it is, then why don't you just echo it along in your head as I pray it out loud. So if you'd like to, please join me. Dear God, I'm sorry for how I've treated you. I'm sorry for living for the things you've created instead of living for you, the creator. Please forgive me for that and for all the things I've done that have made you angry. Amen. Uh, If that's something that you have said to God for the first time, uh, it would be great to tell someone else about that. Don't just keep it to yourself. Uh, Maybe let the friend that you came with know or, uh, yeah, tell someone about that because that's uh, an important thing to have done. Uh, We do have time for, no, we don't have a lot of time for questions. Uh, Has anyone got a burning question that you want to ask? Got one minute. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, do you have anything to say about like the fact
1: uh, that uh, in, in nature um homosexual acts something
0: like observed a lot mm. I mean, in um the nervous, sort of the closest like genetic word that to us like, like you know, homosexual activity yeah. core to their actual social function. Yeah, so the question is uh when you look at nature like the world uh, and you look at animals, you do see uh, homosexual behaviour occurring in animals um, and so that seems kind of natural. Uh, what do we say to that? Well, I think, um, is that that's a fair summary of the question? Yeah. Um, I think that's good observation, uh, but I think it's worth observing that we see all sorts of sexual behaviour in animals. Um, we see the sorts of things that we would frankly be horrified uh, about if they happened amongst humans. We see rape, we see pack rape, we see all sorts of things. So I don't think by looking at uh, the animal world you can work out what is the right way to behave. Um, what you can see is that actually males and females are supposed to fit together. Well, Why do we see different sexual behaviour in animals? Um, not sure, but um, does that mean that it's appropriate for us to engage in all the sort of sexual behaviour that we see in the animal world? No, I don't think so. Um, and uh, if you uh, need clearer guidance on that, the Bible was fairly clear uh, about that. Um, so it uh, it runs against the way that we are made in that sense
1: I'm not sure that's a super great answer but let me think about it more and I'll come back to you